Church, as we make our prayer before our study of the word, we we do each week. We pray for gospel partners in this community and around the world. And this week, the gospel partners that we have as part of the Southern Baptist Convention will be gathering in California, in Anaheim. And so I'll be flying out to California and spend this week with uh, messengers from the 47,000 churches that make up our convention. And church, let's pray for the work of the Holy Spirit among the people of God who will be gathered there. Pray that Jesus will be exalted and glorified and that his people will be faithful to his call and his word above every wind that would blow in our world. So would you pray for our partners in the gospel through the Southern Baptist Convention as we gather this week in Anaheim, California. Let's make our prayer, church. Father, we ask that you would be glorified in our time of teaching today. Lord, we we acknowledge that we can't teach and we can't learn the scriptures by our own power. We need the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. And so, Father, we ask that the Spirit of God would work among all of us. Father, work in me as I speak. Work in my brothers and sisters as they listen, that all of us together would hear your voice above every other word. And God, I do pray not only for ourselves, but the other churches of Jesus Christ gathered in this community, those who will gather on this day all around the world, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit on your people. Lord, we pray for a great harvest of souls before Jesus comes again. And God, we ask that there would be a fervency and a faithfulness that would mark your people in the midst of a dark and desperate world. And so, Lord, our brothers and sisters in Jesus who are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Lord, I thank you for a rich heritage that we get to enjoy of doctrinal purity, of fidelity to Jesus and his mission. And I pray, God, that this year would mark another step of faithfulness through the lives of your people. Guide those messengers, those representatives as we gather together. May there be a spirit of unity around the one and only truth of God's word in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter six, Romans chapter six. And I thought it would be a good thing for us to start our time of teaching like we do every now and then with a little pop quiz. You guys ready for a little test? Ready or not, here, here it comes, okay? So I'm going to test something among us today, and I'll tell you right off the, the bat that I'm going to test your ability to perceive the difference between two different things. I'll explain what I mean by that, but I'm just going to let you get the hang of it by starting off with a really, really easy example. I want to see if you can tell the difference between a piano and my family. You ready for this? I'm even going to help you out, all right? Let me, let me give you guys a little hint. This right here to my left-hand side is a piano. Do you guys see that? There's a piano right here. And just to give you another example, because some of you have not met me or my family, on the screen there's a, a picture of my family. Now that's us right outside of the Cleveland Browns Stadium just before they got annihilated by the Pittsburgh Steelers, okay? So we're still, we're still happy. We'll be excommunicating that group right after the service. There's not that much grace here. Here's the story. Just want to see if you guys can follow along with the concept of this game. So, so let me just start with this. Would you point to the piano? Point to the piano. Now, like half of you aren't pointing anywhere. Point to the piano, folks. Okay. 
All right, put your hands down. Now point to my family. Okay. I know we got a couple. Put, keep those hands up. I got to see how you're doing. All right, the results are in. You can put your hands down. So just to, so you know, you want to you want your test results? They're back already. As it concerns the piano, almost all of you did really, really well. Okay, but, but I just want you to know that as it concerns my family, almost every single one of you failed miserably. Because here's what I mean. If you pointed to the screen, you weren't pointing to my family. You were pointing to a picture of my family. My family is sitting out there in rows among you people. And you didn't point to my family. You pointed to a picture of my family. See what I did there? little tricky pastor game that I played on you. And here's the story, and this is the point of the game. There's a difference between a picture of something and the reality that it represents. Now, that's not to say that pictures like the one on the screen aren't important. As a matter of fact, a picture of something that's really precious to you can be the most valuable thing in your possession. Because it represents something that is infinitely valuable to you. So, for instance, my home, my office are filled with pictures just like the one on the screen. Most of them are not outside of the Browns Stadium because I want them to be happy memories for our family. But those pictures that are in my house and at my office are incredibly valuable to me because they represent people who are precious above all other people in this world to me. Pictures of my family are precious to me because my family is precious to me. So if someone comes into my office or my house and they start spray painting over pictures of my family, you just need to know this. We're going to have ourselves an old-fashioned issue, okay? We'll be dealing with that face-to-face because those pictures have a corresponding value to the reality that they represent. Now, we can take that picture off the screen because some of you may be asking, what does this have to do with the message for this morning? Well, it's really foundational for the message this morning. We're going to be talking about baptism and why it matters to the people of God. And one of the most important things that any of us can understand about baptism is that baptism is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Uh, We see in, in baptism, the Bible gives us a physical picture of a spiritual reality. And since the spiritual reality is so precious, so gloriously and infinitely valuable, that makes the picture of that spiritual reality precious Invaluable, And so here's what my hope is for today. As we talk about baptism, what I really want to do is spend the majority of our time talking about the spiritual reality that's portrayed in baptism. And my hope is that you would come to love and treasure the spiritual reality of the gospel in a way that would only increase your commitment to and your appreciation of the picture of that reality that is baptism. So with that, let's look at our text and we'll see, I pray, a beautiful, a beautiful expression, a, 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 an articulation of the reality that baptism portrays in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That grace may abound by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the word of God for us this morning. And I don't know of any passage of scripture in the entire Bible that better describes the spiritual reality that's portrayed in baptism. And I just want to highlight a couple major truths that you see right here in our text. And here's the first truth you see in this portion of scripture. Jesus has more grace then we have sin. That's what Paul's actually referring to in verse one when he asks this kind of strange question. When he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? That might seem like a really weird thing for a man of God to ask. Here's what's going on. Paul is anticipating that there might be some people who would misunderstand what he just said at the end of chapter 5. So glance back at chapter 5, verse 20, just a few sentences earlier, and he says this. Now the law came to increase the trespasses, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Here's what he's saying. One of the reasons why God gave his law, all of the commandments that he's given to his people, one of the reasons he has given the commandments of the Old Testament is so that it would show us just how sinful we are. We talked about this a lot when we studied Galatians in the first six months of the year, but that God gave those laws in the Old Testament to be like lines down the middle of the road of life. You may be a terrible driver who swerves all over the place, but if there aren't lines that are painted on the road that show you every time you swerve, you won't know just how bad a driver you are. And that's why God gave us the law. He painted lines down the road of life to expose just how erratic our sin is, that we are all over the place in essence. And so in that way, since God gave more laws than we had before he gave the laws, it increased our understanding of sin. It actually increased the incidences of our going over the line because there were lines now where there weren't lines before. And Paul says the whole reason God did that was to increase trespass, to show an increased awareness of our own sin. But there's a reality That even though all of us have sinned and our sin has abounded, verse 20 says, here's what you need to know about Jesus. Even though sin has abounded because of our sinfulness, God's grace to us in Jesus has abounded all the more. Hear this truth of the gospel. Jesus has more grace than you have sin. Do you know that's good news? You know why it's good news? Because you're absolutely chock full of sin. Because <laughs> you are a sinner. The Bible's clear that all of us have sinned against the glory of God Almighty. Our greatest issue in humanity, your greatest issue in your own life is a sin issue. We have rebelled against God in our lives, our hearts, our world is filled with sin. And the good news of the gospel is this. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what your story is, and no matter how harsh and dark the world has been around you, you may be filled with sin, but Jesus has more grace than you have sin. He's full of grace. His his heart is like an ocean 
filled with grace for broken sinners just like us. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus has more grace than we have sin. So he saves us by his grace. He forgives us by his grace. He restores us to God the Father by his grace. He adopts us into his own family by his grace. He reserves a home and prepares it for us in heaven by his grace. He has a limitless ocean of grace and we get to float around in it for all eternity. Jesus has more grace than you have sin. Reason to rejoice today. But the question becomes, how do we gain access to that ocean of grace? How is it that we go from being people who are rightfully condemned because of our sin to being people who are fully accepted in Christ's Grace. Well, Paul has already shared that truth with us earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, just the chapter before. Here's how he began this section of Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 2 says this Through him, talking about Jesus, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. How do we get access to the grace of God to us in Jesus? How do we get it? Through what? Read (laughs) through faith, through faith. We have grace abundant through faith in Jesus. If you want to know how you can enjoy access into the amazing grace of God to save, forgive, restore, adopt, and give heaven for your home, it's right there in the word of God through faith and faith alone in Jesus to do for you what you can't do for yourself. It's through faith that we gain access into the ocean of God's grace for us in Jesus. Do you guys remember the days when you could buy a ticket to one of the theme parks in Orlando? And that ticket, when you got to the other side of the gate, granted you access to everything on the other side of the gate. You remember those days? They're long gone, all right? They got a group of people because apparently making billions of dollars every day isn't enough for the theme park companies. They got a group of people to strategically design those parks to bankrupt every family that would attend them, right? So not only do you have to pay a small fortune to get through the gate, once you get through the gate, you've got to pay another small fortune just to enjoy anything that's a part of the park. You got to buy new tickets that get you access to faster lines so you're not rotting in purgatory before you enter into an enjoyable ride, right? Then you got to mortgage your house just to afford lunch for you and your small children, right? You can't make it out alive without having to nickel and dime yourself. Can you tell I'm a little upset having visited Universal Studios recently? All right, God has more grace than they have sin, but that's not the point. I I want you to know that there are some of us who see our Christianity like that. When we feel like there was a fortune that was paid to get us into the gate, but then we have to keep on paying, keep on working, keep on offering payment after payment after payment to gain access into what God promises to us. Like at any point in time, the well will be running dry if we don't keep up our end of the deal. Can I give you some really, really good news? Jesus doesn't work like an Orlando theme park. He paid it all at Calvary. He gained access by grace, not our work, into the glorious gifts that God has for his people. There is only one 
all-access VIP entrance into the limitless ocean of his grace. And it's faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It's believing Jesus has paid the entrance fee for us into the kingdom of God. It's believing that Jesus has gained VIP access for us by his work and not ours. It's by believing that Jesus has already enabled us to come boldly before God as our Father and his throne as a throne of grace. It's through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone that we gain access into every gracious gift God has for us. Your sin is no match for Jesus and you get his grace when you simply trust in him. Now let me connect all of that truth to the question we saw at the beginning of our text. He says, should we sin so that grace might abound? And what he's doing here is he's anticipating that someone might hear the truth I've just shared with you, that Jesus has more grace than we have sin, and then overreact or misinterpret what he's saying. They might think, well, if every act of sin is met with an act of God's grace, and he has limitless grace, then aren't acts of sin displayed towards sinners a thing that's good, a thing that glorifies Jesus, a thing that shows how awesome his grace is? And Paul would say, yes, his grace shows how glorious he is. So they say, well, then what would increase his grace being seen? More than me sinning so he can show me grace. And Paul says, I understand your logic, but you're completely wrong. He says, listen, by no means, look at verse 2, by no means... And then he asked this next question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He says the reason followers of Jesus should not live a lifestyle of sin, even though Jesus has more grace than we have sin, is because there's another truth that's a part of the gospel. It's that we have died to sin. And you might wonder, what what does he mean by dying to sin? Well, let's just keep reading because he actually explains exactly what he means. And I want you to notice that now we see it has to do with baptism. Okay, with being baptized. Look at verse 3. He says, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you see those words, baptized? In just those three verses, three times, he uses the word baptized or baptism. He says, listen, the way you died to sin was by being baptized. And the way you live a brand new kind of life is by being baptized. He's saying that baptism is the basis for the entire Christian life. He says it's through baptism that your sin is crucified at the cross. It's through baptism that we have the ability to live a life that is dead to sin, that's freed from sin, that's victorious in the eyes of God. And here's what I know. For the last two minutes, some of you who know what the Bible teaches are feeling a little bit on edge when you hear me say it's by baptism that all of those things are true, right? Okay, I guess not, but I thought maybe some of you would still be paying attention. But yeah, you're thinking, I thought it was through faith that we gained access. And now you just said it's by baptism 
that we are able to have our sin forgiven. It's by baptism that we've been crucified. What what do I mean? Well, I, I want you to know this. I was really, really intentional with what I just said and what I didn't say. I said baptism is how those things occur. I didn't say water baptism is how those things occur. Here's what I mean. The English word baptize isn't really an English word at all. It's actually a Greek word that's been adopted into the English language. And the Greek word is baptizo. In Greek, the word baptizo means to immerse or to dip something. As a matter of fact, in, 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 I don't even know what a flact is, but as a matter of fact, in Greek literature, baptizo was used to describe a sunken ship that was completely immersed under the surface of the water. You need to know this. Sunken ships aren't partially in and out of the water. Sunken ships aren't sprinkled with rain. Sunken ships are immersed. So the word baptizo means to completely immerse Something And what you need to know about that word is it can pretty much refer to anything that you're able to immerse another thing in. So, for instance, here's a little divine revelation to all of us. You can immerse Oreos into milk. <laughs> My daughters have been lifelong committed Oreo baptizers, and they didn't even know it. You can immerse it. And just so you know, it doesn't have to be liquid that you immerse something in. I demand that all of my soft-serve ice cream cones are baptized in chocolate. I need that thing dipped in chocolate before you hand it to me. And the point is that the word baptize or immerse can refer to anything, not just water. And that's how Paul's using it here. That's the spiritual reality. He's not talking about water. As a matter of fact, he very specifically says what he's talking about. What are we immersed in? He doesn't say you're immersed or baptized into water, does he? Verse 3, he says you're immersed into something else. What is it? He says you've been baptized into what? Into Jesus Christ. Guys, that's the next major truth in this text. Not only does Jesus have more grace than you have sin, but in his great Grace, God immerses us into Jesus through faith. You need to know this. A miracle happens when you place your faith and trust in Jesus. I mean, a bona fide miracle. It's called union with Christ. I don't understand it. I can't explain it any more than if you said, Titus, how did Jesus break that bread and feed 5,000? I can't explain it. That doesn't mean it isn't true. It's called a miracle. The same thing here with the spiritual union that's a part of our salvation. When we come to faith in Jesus, God miraculously unites us with Jesus. He immerses us truly, completely into Christ. He says there in verse 3, we are immersed into Christ's death. Guys, what that means is that in some very real way, we who are trusting in Jesus were with Christ when he died at the cross. Again, I can't explain how all of that works. I don't know anything about the space-time continuum, so I can't tell you anything about how we could be present here, but present still at the cross of Jesus Christ. I can only say that's why we have to believe in a God who works miracles to believe the gospel of Jesus. We were present with Jesus at his cross, and that's how his death can provide for the forgiveness of our sin. 
Because you're united to Jesus through faith, that means your sin is able to be present with Christ at the cross. And since God poured out his wrath for sin at the cross, your sin can be punished fully and forever at the cross of Jesus so you don't have to die and have your sins punished in a place called hell. You were present with Jesus at the cross if you're trusting in Jesus because of this miracle of immersion into Christ. But it doesn't stop there. He says you're not just immersed into the death of Christ. He says you are immersed into Christ's life. That's what he says in verse 4. He says you're united to the life of Jesus in a way that actually immerses you into the very resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead. Listen to me. Here's the gospel that we're called to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And when you trust in him, that exact same power, the exact same power that raised Christ from that grave is at work in you today, right now, raising you up to a brand new kind of life. That's how we live a victorious life that's dead to sin, like Paul said earlier, by the resurrection power of Christ in us. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. We don't live a victorious life by rolling up our sleeves and making up our minds to be good boys and girls and live a life that's pleasing to God. We don't overcome the pitfalls of the sin that easily ensnares each one of us by resolving at the beginning of every new year that we're going to do it right this year. That's not how we live the Christian life. We live by depending on the power of Jesus in us. By the Holy Spirit that raised Christ up from the dead, Jesus promises to raise you up as well. And that goes back then to that first question. Should we sin so that grace might abound? Paul says, by no means. Because forgiven sin is not the only way God's grace is displayed. God's grace is also displayed in victory over sin because victory over sin is also a work of Christ's grace as Jesus lives in you. So the way you display the glory of grace is not simply by being forgiven of your past sin. It's by walking in a newness of life as you depend on the gracious power of Jesus in you. It's as you're immersed in the life of Christ that you live the life that's pleasing to God. That's why I said baptism is the basis for the entire Christian life. I don't mean water baptism. I mean the spiritual work that Jesus does of being united to everyone who trusts in him, trusting that you're immersed into his death where your sin is punished and you are forgiven, that you're immersed in Christ's resurrection life and he's giving you power to live a life that's freed just as Jesus was freed from sin and lived in holiness. You can live free from sin. And that life is a life that's filled with God's grace, enabling your work, enabling your holiness, enabling you to be more like Jesus. It's our immersion into Christ It's our baptism into Christ, that spiritual reality of being united with him that's the basis for the entire Christian life. And how do we gain access into that life of grace? Through faith and faith alone. And that brings me all the way back to the very beginning of this message. Water baptism is a picture of all of that spiritual reality. 
Water baptism doesn't save us. It doesn't make us right with God. It doesn't cause us to be acceptable or forgiven. It's not the same as the reality to which it represents. And you may have participated in the picture. And the picture is precious. But the picture is no substitute for the real thing. What if I took a picture of my family on vacation and called that a family vacation? I'd be weird. (laughs) I would be misguided. And you wouldn't believe if I said I took a family vacation because I had my picture that I was telling you the truth. Why? Because a picture is no substitute for the reality to which it points And that's why baptism matters, but it doesn't replace saving faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. But when you've come to experience the reality, the picture begins to mean more and more. When I'm out somewhere and I see a a picture of a place that I am from. So sometimes I've been walking in the mall or I've been walking at a store and I've seen a a picture of Ohio in the winter. And I look at that and I think, God, praise you for saving me from that every winter. No, I say that is beautiful. That's my homeland. Even more, I've seen pictures of that bridge coming into Merritt Island. And you guys need to know I'm a Merritt Islander at heart through and through. I'm allergic to crossing those bridges. I'm dreading going to California for lots of reasons. But one, it's not Merritt Island. I love where I live. And when I see that picture, something in my heart says, that's where I am from. That's where I live. Even more than that, when I see a picture of my family, when I see a picture of my wife, when I see a picture of my kids, there's something about it. Oftentimes, I'll be walking through my office. There's a great big picture that hangs that you all gave me for one of my anniversaries here as your pastor. It hangs there on my wall. And almost every single day, I stop and look at it, and I think, those kids are getting so big. Time goes by so fast. Most of all, I think, man, I love those people. Man, I love those people. Oftentimes, I look at that picture. I begin to pray for him and the kids just standing there in my office. Lots of times when I'm bored in a meeting, I find myself looking over at that wall and saying, man, it'd be good to be swimming with them. I love those pictures because I love those people. And some of you who've experienced the reality of union with Christ, who've experienced his forgiveness over your sin and his power to live a brand new life, that doesn't diminish your view of baptism at all, even though you know it's only faith in God's work through Jesus that saves you. It elevates it because the reality is so precious that the picture becomes precious to you. And guys, that's what brings our big idea for our time together this morning. Here's our big idea today. By God's grace, we are immersed into Jesus through faith. And that's why baptism matters. God, just like the portraits of my family are precious because they represent people who are precious to me. Water baptism is infinitely precious because it represents the infinite grace of God to us in Jesus. It represents the fact that we are surrounded, immersed, baptized into an ocean of grace through faith in Jesus. Baptism's a beautiful picture of that spiritual reality. And I want to be really clear about something. There are other reasons why baptism matters. For instance, 
It matters because Jesus commanded it, okay? So Jesus said that we're to be disciples who make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that commandment should stand on its own as something that matters to us because everything that Christ commands should matter to us. Even if we don't understand completely why it's significant, it should be significant simply because Jesus says to do it. And if you're going to say Jesus is your Lord, then you're inherently saying Jesus has the right to tell you what to do, right? So baptism matters for many more reasons, including the fact that Jesus commanded his disciples to baptize and be baptized. But I want you to think for just a moment why it is that Jesus, out of all the things he could have chosen to mark the beginning of our spiritual journeys, would have chosen baptism as the thing. Have you ever thought about that? He could have chosen anything he wanted to be the thing that would mark our public declaration of faith in him. He could have chosen to tell us, make a sign that says, I'm a follower of Jesus. Then walk around for 24 hours straight wherever you live and hold up that sign. He could have done that, and that would have been a public declaration of our faith in Jesus. But he didn't choose to make us make a sign and walk around the city. He could have chosen us to tattoo something on our skin. But he's not a millennial, so he wasn't into tattoo. No, I'm kidding. He could have told us to present a special offering to him. But you know what he did? Out of all the things that he chose, he chose water baptism. He wanted a public declaration of our faith that would also be a public demonstration of the gospel truth we're placing faith in. He wanted us to be reminded in our baptism what it is that saves us. Union with Christ and not our work. And he wanted the people around us to see that the truth of the gospel is not only in our hearts, it's in our lives as Jesus raises us up from the dead. And because our baptism is a physical demonstration of that spiritual reality, it's important that the way we practice baptism would paint as accurate a picture as possible of the truth of the gospel. And so here's how I want to end. I want to show you two implications, just tell you two implications that all of this spiritual truth holds for how we practice baptism as a church. So first, we practice something called believer's baptism. We practice baptism for believers. That's just another way of saying that we do not baptize people who are not able to express personal faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and their only hope for salvation. That means we don't baptize babies because they're not able to express personal faith in Jesus. Baptism is a personal expression of our faith in the gospel of Jesus. Why? Because it's only through personal faith in Jesus that we have access to saving grace. So here's what, what that means. If you're trusting in your baptism or anything else but the grace of God to you and Jesus as your salvation, then your baptism isn't serving as a biblical baptism. It's not serving the biblical role that baptism's to serve. It becomes a religious work and not a personal profession of faith in the true gospel of Jesus. And I'll just tell you in a very practical way, that's one of the reasons why we do not recognize the baptism of the Catholic Church as biblical baptism. The Catholic Church teaches that baptism is one of the sacraments that convey saving grace 
to the participant. Here's a, a part of the Catholic Church Catechism, paragraph 1263. This is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. By baptism, all sins are forgiven, original and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. That means we're trusting in baptism to provide for the forgiveness of our sin. It's talking about water baptism. And here's what that means then. If you're trusting in your baptism to provide for your salvation from sin, you're not trusting in Jesus alone to provide for your salvation from sin. And that isn't to say that Catholics can't be saved. Anyone who will call on the name of the Lord is able to be saved by the grace of Jesus. I believe there are certainly Catholics who trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but trusting in Jesus alone is something you do in spite of Roman Catholic teaching like this, not because of it. And so because we take baptism serious as a beautiful and accurate picture of the gospel, we wouldn't recognize Baptism that is provided as a work for forgiveness of sin. We practice baptism for believers who profess their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, not baptism or any other work. Second practice is that we practice baptism by immersion. Okay, so like I said earlier, the word baptize means to immerse. So if I tell you that I want my ice cream cone dipped in chocolate, and you put your fingers into the chocolate sauce and sprinkle it on my ice cream cone, I'm sending it back, bro, because I want that thing dipped, immersed in it. Why? Because that's what the word means. We have a word for sprinkle. I don't use that word. I use the word for baptize, dip. Can you tell how serious I take my ice cream (laughs) with religious zeal and conviction? The word means something. And it's the same thing with the word baptize. It means to immerse. And that's why the context in the New Testament for baptism shows that there had to be enough water to immerse people in order to have a baptism. Matthew chapter 3, verse 6. John the baptizer was baptizing people. And it said he did that in the Jordan, in a great big river. He did that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, that once Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, it says he went up out of the water. Why? Because he had gone down into it. John chapter 3, verse 23 says the reason that John was able to baptize in a particular place was because there was plenty of water. You need plenty of water to get a person down underneath it and immerse them. Acts chapter 8, verse 38, when Philip was going to baptize the Ethiopian, it says they together went down into the water. I'd like to see that happen with a little cup of water. Two people, it's, never mind. It had to be enough water because the word detailed the practice. Immersion into water requires enough water to immerse. But even more than just that, and that's enough, immersion best represents the spiritual reality of the gospel. We don't get a little bit of Jesus. We get all of him. And he gets all of us. As a matter of fact, in verses 3 and 4, it says that we are buried with Christ 
in baptism. And that's the spiritual baptism of being united fully in Christ. It doesn't say that through faith you are sprinkled with Christ. It says you're buried with him through the immersion of your union with him. And then it says that you are raised from the tomb. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't just stick his thumb out and give us all a thumbs up to let us know he was okay. He emerged with his whole self out of that grave. He brought his whole body out into the brand new power of life in his resurrection. And that's how he raises us up as well. Not bits and pieces of us. He raises all of us by his resurrection power. And the only way to portray that particular truth faithfully is through immersion that displays our immersion into the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we practice water baptism. Those are just two ways that this spiritual reality informs the way we practice baptism as a church. And so before I leave this morning, I just want us to respond to the message of today in Romans chapter 6. And it starts with, with the reality of Christ's work in us. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, my prayer is that today you would see that Christ has done for you what you can't do for yourself. I want to invite you even right now to acknowledge that you have sinned against God and that your sin is great, but that your hope is that as great as your sin might be, Christ's grace is greater. Just acknowledge that Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sin and he rose again from the dead to raise you up to a brand new life. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that today. Would you trust in the grace of God to forgive you, make you right, keep you right, take you home to heaven through the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. In just a moment, I'm going to be down front with our other pastors and we want to invite anyone who would like to respond to the gospel to come and pray with us. But we know that it's not just those who need to respond by trusting in Jesus. There are some of you who are trusting in Jesus, but you've never been baptized as an expression of your faith in a way that displays the truth of the gospel. If you've never been baptized into water by immersion as an expression of your faith, I want to encourage you to do that. Would would you make that a step of obedient faith? that you would follow Christ into his design. As a matter of fact, um, one of my favorite nights of the year is coming up. It's on July 31st. It's our ocean baptism when we're gonna go out into our community and baptize people there in the Atlantic Ocean. And it is an awesome display of the gospel of Christ in our community. It's an awesome time for you if you've never been baptized to be baptized as a display of your faith in Jesus. If you'd like to be a part of that, I'm gonna be down front, of course, with our other pastors and prayer partners. You can talk with us. We'll also have a baptism class the week before on Sunday, July 24th. We want to encourage you to respond to the teaching of God's word by obediently walking into biblical baptism because it matters. It portrays the reality of our union with Christ. And the last thing is this. Many of you, maybe most of you in this room would say, I'm trusting in Jesus and I've been baptized by immersion. It's expressing my faith in Jesus. And it was displaying the reality of the gospel. My question for you is this. Are you living in light of the truth about baptism? And what I mean by that is, are you living by depending on Jesus to give you victory over sin? Some of you have lived perpetually defeated in your own sin. And it's because you've never stepped into the fullness of the truth of the gospel That Jesus, by his grace, does more than forgive your sin. Jesus enables your victory 
over sin. And there may be a place in your life where just in a moment you need to pray that Jesus would display his power by his grace as you depend on him and him alone to live in victory over sin. May your baptism be more than just the marker of the beginning of your Christian life. I pray it would be the declaration for out throughout your entire Christian life. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who makes me right, keeps me right, and gives me victory over sin. In his great grace, God immerses us into Jesus through faith. And that's why baptism matters. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's enter into a time of prayer. Father, I thank you for the reality of Jesus and his perfect life, his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection. And God, I pray that as we contemplate something that we routinely practice, something like baptism, I pray that we would never engage in empty religious rituals, but I pray that we would know and love the truth of the gospel in a way that we would prize the picture of the gospel that is baptism. I pray that for those of us who've not been baptized but are trusting in Jesus, that we would take that step of obedience. And Lord, I pray for all of us who get to witness baptism, all of us who get to to see that picture over and over again, I pray that our hearts would never tire of seeing it, never get used to seeing it because of the beauty of the eternal reality it represents. So stir our hearts to love the truth of the gospel. Stir our hearts, I pray, to step into the truth of the gospel and live in victorious resurrection power because of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.